0: When I was the CEO of Veterans Village of San Diego, she's like, you are great at being the CEO. And I said, yes, I said, but I tell you, every single day was mentally exhausting. And she's like, but you never showed it. And I said, I couldn't show it. I said, as a leader, you can't show that you're mentally exhausted because I didn't want people to think that I couldn't handle the job or that I wasn't there to be able to support them, you know, especially my team and, and the veterans. And so you got to find outlets, outlets that can help you relax and recharge.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Kimberly Mitchell is the Senior Vice President for Military, Veteran, and Government Affairs at National University, and she is an advocate for our veterans, military families, and Gold Star families. In this episode, she shares about being adopted by her father as an orphan baby during the Vietnam War, and how her upbringing in rural Wisconsin prepared her for a life of military service. Kimberly also shares some fascinating stories about her time serving as a service warfare officer in the United States Navy and working in foreign military sales in the Middle East during the war. Kimberly's thoughts on developing the skill of adaptability and how to lead through stressful periods of time had a really big impact on me. If you're interested in learning how you can help support our veterans and their families, reach out to Kim on LinkedIn. She sits on the board of a number of foundations, including the Infinite Hero Foundation, the Woody Williams Foundation, and the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, and she's happy to point you in the right direction. Finally, if you're looking for information and resources on how to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter. Just go to www.ericquorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with a desire to improve. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. All right, well, Kim, I'm super excited to to be with you today. Thank you for taking some time to to join me on the podcast.
0: Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the invitation to join you today.
1: You have an amazing story, and you've lived an amazing life so far. I wondered if you could just talk for just a little bit about your upbringing and how that's shaped you as a person. And really, if you could just start with like the very beginning.
0: The very beginning as of how I know my life story now. Yeah. So how I know is back in 1972 in Vietnam during the war, the North Vietnamese were advancing into a town called Quang Tri. And there is a South Vietnamese Marine, and he and his company were assigned to evacuate the village and then blow up the Michang Bridge, which is just south of the village, to try to prevent the North Vietnamese from advancing south. And so right before they blew up the bridge, they noticed one last survivor stumbling across the bridge carrying a bundle. and And this South Vietnamese Marine was tasked with going and investigating. And when he went and confronted the the gentleman the gentleman showed him this bundle and it was a it unwrapped it it was a baby wrapped up in a towel and placed in mm-hmm. a hat and uh he asked this gentleman was this baby his and he said no I found her along the side of the road her her mother had been killed and she was mm-hmm. trying to nurse on her dead mother he said but you take her there's an orphanage down in Da Nang. take her to the orphanage and, and save this baby's life so the South Vietnamese Marine, his name is Bao Tran, took it upon himself to take, he basically commandeered a company Jeep and drove down to Da uh, Nang, to the Sacred Heart Orphanage. And when he presented the child to the nuns, they asked him where the story, where he, he found her. And he said, she's not mine. She was found. She doesn't have a name. Well, and they said, well, you brought her here you name her. He said, Well, okay, I'm going to name her the name that I had been reserving for my first daughter because he didn't have any children at the time. And they said, Well, what name is that? He said, Nokbik, and it means precious pearl. Wow. So, so that was the name that the Vietnamese name that I had uh, Tran T Nokbik, Tran being the last name, T being the middle name, Noc Bic, first name. A few months later, a, a US airman who was stationed at the air base in Da Nang came over to the orphanage uh, as many service members did during the time to bring supplies, clothes, food, treats just to spend some time with the with the orphans because it was some time off and maybe away from the war and some time to just maybe think about maybe home. And mm-hmm. so he came over to the orphanage and brought uh, some supplies one day and one day they placed baby number 899 into his arms. The baby named Trantinakbik and That day happened to be a a lucky day for that baby because he fell in love. And in September of 2000, or excuse me, in September of 1972, uh, I was adopted and brought over to the United States. Uh, And I was fortunate enough to be brought over to, uh, you know, start this new life, to grow up as an American. And my father was still in the Air Force, so for the first six years of our life, we were still, you know, the Air Force family. So we were stationed at Cannon Air Force Base in Clovis, New Mexico, and then Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. And then he retired. And so we moved up to northern Wisconsin, where my mom was from. So we moved up to the house right across the street from my my grandma and grandpa Mm -hmm. and that's where we grew up in a very, very small town where everybody knows everybody, everybody's related somehow to everybody else. Um, so are you a cheese head? I am a cheese head, and it wasn't though until my growing up years that I got a pretty good appreciation for football and and uh, the appreciation for the packers but yeah. it's it's the small town mentality is a great place to grow up because you mm. you learn a lot about responsibility. You learn a lot about community involvement and community engagement because in a small town, you can do anything you want, right? You, if you want to play basketball, you play basketball. If you want to play in the band, you play in the band. If you want to mm. sing in the choir, sing in the choir. And it doesn't really mean you have to have any talent. You can just sign up for it and be a part of the organization. And so mm. you got to participate in a lot of different things, which makes you a, really an all-rounded, very, uh, a student that has experienced a lot of different things, and which is what colleges and universities look for when you're applying. But I knew I wanted a life of service because I, my, with my dad being Air Force, I was pretty attracted to the schedule, the routine, the discipline. My father we were a pretty strict family growing up. So I had to make my bed, you know, square corners in the sheets, starting in like kindergarten. And so your, your was,
1: house was kind of run like this?
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so going into the military was, for me, was actually not that big of a change for me. In fact, I ironed all my clothes starting in kindergarten because the rule in the house was for at least, and I don't really remember my brother ironing any of his clothes, but the rule for me was... <laughs> you iron all your clothes or I will have to wear the clothes that my father ironed for me. Well, guess what? I was not wearing the clothes that (laughs) he ironed for me. So I ironed everything. And it wasn't until I was uh, actually graduated from the Naval Academy when I was told that people don't iron their blue jeans. And I was like, I didn't know that. (laughs) Well, I do. (laughs) I've been uh, ironing my blue jeans for so many years, but anyway, I ended up applying to the Naval Academy mm-hmm. and uh, it, I got accepted into the Naval Academy prep school, which is in Newport, Rhode Island, which is actually a pretty good thing because in Northern Wisconsin, as great of opportunity it is, there was also a limitation at that time and not having a lot of AP classes. We didn't have calculus. We didn't have right. some other things. So going to the prep school up in Newport, I got to take calculus. I got to take all of these basically freshman courses, college courses. Mm. And as long as you graduate with a a 2.0 GPA, you get an admission to the Naval Academy from the prep school. And so in between prep school and the start of the Naval Academy there in 1991, they gave us 30 days off Mm. before going and reporting in and raising your hand and swearing in for induction day. And so while I was home, we were working on the farm one day and, and it was about two weeks prior to me leaving to go to the Naval Academy. And my father was struck by lightning and killed on our farm. There was a big, there was a, the big storm. And I, when I go around the, the country and I speak to that and I tell people that story, it helps people understand that I understand what can happen to families. I under, absolutely understand what can happen to families when someone is taken from them. I understand the fragile nature of a family structure at that point where anything can completely crumble what's left of the family. Mm-hmm. And it's really important for community programs and community support to come in and assist that family, which is, I didn't know it at that time, but that event helped me now, you know, in my work now in the nonprofit space. but. I had to go to the, you know, I went to the academy because of my NAPs enlistment. I had to report to the academy two weeks later. And I went through plebe summer, but there were some challenges at home with the family. And so I talked to the Naval Academy leadership and they allowed me to resign from the Naval Academy and go home and take care of my mom and my brother. What did and that
1: look like for that time that you were home?
0: It was It was challenging trying to get everything back in order right so we still had a farm we had about 20 head of cattle we had chickens we had, had dogs cats trying to resume some sort of normalcy in our lives which was challenging but the good thing was is that uh, i did take some college courses at the university of wisconsin superior during that year so i kind of i I signed up for chemistry, calculus, and physics. So oh, my I gosh. Finished, I only took three classes, but it was three You're classes. You're glutton for
1: punishment. That's what you are.
0: I, didn't, I did not want to take any English classes. I didn't want to take any yeah. history classes. I, I was math and science focused. and that. Okay. And I'm glad I did because it kept my brain kind of functioning and, and thinking at that type of level. Then the, the following year, the, the academy asked me if I wanted to come back with the, with the next class, uh, the class in 96. And I said, yes, I was ready. The, the family was ready for me to go back, and I was ready to go back. And I, I knew that I, I needed to go back. I saw the Naval Academy as my way out of northern Wisconsin to be able to go do something. And I was afraid that if I didn't go back, I would, I would get stuck in that Northern Wisconsin atmosphere of, of not being able to see the world like I wanted to, not being able to do what I saw as what was my calling, which was uh, going into the Navy and serving. So I did go back, ended up graduating in class with the class of 96 and majoring in ocean engineering. And I was a surface warfare officer for 17 years in the Navy doing ship and shore Tours, most of my shore tours, in fact, all of my shore tours were in the D.C. area. So I absolutely know what it's like to work at the Pentagon and in the mm. agency circle and being a White House military social aide, which is uh, I did uh, about two and a half years for, for President Bush and about two years for President Obama in their administrations working. And it's a, that is the ultimate fly on the wall experience to be a White House military social aid, to be able to meet mm. people who change the world and hmm. it's not somebody that I'd meet at at Ralph's grocery shopping or, or going to the
1: gym or anything. When like you that. met some of these people, I mean, you're a very confident individual. Were there ever moments of like, oh my goodness, this person is right here? Did you ever, did you begin to become comfortable being around people of that magnitude?
0: I was amazed all the time about who I was being able to meet and I will tell you that sometimes people ask me are like who's the most impressive person that you met at the at the White House and it, how do you compare you know <laughs> president of the United States to King Abdullah of Jordan to George Clooney to mm. uh, Sandra Day O'Connor to Neil Diamond to Sir Paul McCartney like so what was
1: what was your life like when you were doing this like what does a day look like
0: well, I mean, that was a special duty at, Roy- yeah. at the White House. So I had a job. I had so... What was your uh,
1: job, like, every single day
0: So I had three different jobs my last six years in in the Navy. And mm-hmm. I did three and a half years of doing foreign military sales, which is selling weapon ships, planes, and missiles to foreign governments on behalf right. of the government.
1: I want to double-click on that for just a second. Okay. Okay. Because, like... I've heard it said that you've been called the Lord of war before. (laughs) Can (laughs) can you talk about this just a little bit? I'm joking. I'm joking about this, but like, can you talk about your experience in foreign military sales? It sounds very boring, but it's not.
0: Uh, No, it was actually, it was a a job that I received uh, that Mm -hmm. I was given orders to when I left the Middle East uh, in Bahrain to back here to the States. And because i had just come from the middle east my command at the navy international programs office decided that assigning me to a middle east portfolio would be a great thing so i got <laughs> the countries of iraq afghanistan pakistan bahrain and yemen as my portfolio for for doing foreign military and there's
1: there's not a lot of things going on around there right now not a lot then. of things <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: Let's just say that I was a frequent flyer into the admiral's office as well as overseas in meeting with uh, different folks. So we had we were in Pakistan at least eight times. We were in Bahrain meeting. We had meetings in Doha, Qatar. It was interesting being able to be a part of rebuilding some of these countries, right? Iraq and Afghanistan. We were rebuilding them, their infrastructure. We were rebuilding and helping train their military. There's a couple of things that I I was able to do is we were able to get 78,707 M16A2 rifles uh, to the Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police. We were able to provide the the Iraqi Navy with twenty, I believe it was twenty fast attack boats. We called them fabs, fast attack boats. We also got them pretty some pretty good high powered ribs to be able to start rebuilding their navy and rebuilding their military their military forces. So when
1: you would go in and talk to these folks, I mean, from if you think about it, I mean, the Middle East is, There's a lot of landmass, but there's so many different cultures and things that are going on in that area. It's not like America and then Texas to Louisiana. Like, yeah, there's some cultural differences. There's a lot. I mean, when you would go in and talk to these folks, like, how did you approach? Was there a lot of research that you would do before you would go spend time with these people? You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a lot of cultural things to learn, what to say, what not to say, how to act.
0: Oh, there's a lot to learn. Uh, I, I didn't do a whole lot of research because I didn't have a whole lot of time before my first meeting. And mm. you're basically trying to learn what what is, is what is a case? What does that mean that you have a case? Well, it's when they request a piece of equipment, and you mm-hmm. assign a case to it, and you start working with the Naval Sea Systems Command or the or SPAW or something to be able to provide this capability, but going to some of these places and meeting with the head of Iraqi Navy or the head of Pakistan Navy and Pakistan Air Force. And I'm a five foot two Vietnamese American female, and they're looking at me like, what in the world is the American Navy doing to us? But one thing that I've, one of the things that I've learned over the course of my time is that. Always show you're professionally competent to do the job. Mm. And one of the things that at first, you know, they looked at me like, there is no way we're going to be able to work with her. And she doesn't know anything. But when I started showing them that I could do what I said I was going to do, that I would work with them to, to figure out what capabilities they wanted and what capabilities the U.S. wanted them to have, and that we would together get those cases through and approved. And once they realized that I wasn't going to BS them, that I was going to be fair with them and I was going to tell them the truth, on, on probably is not a good thing to ask for, but you know we could do this, right? And and do what I could. And, and I was basically the liaison then between the two governments, between the U.S. government and the foreign government. So it was certainly an experience that had I stayed in northern Wisconsin, I would have never gotten.
1: Mm. I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing for anybody to be tasked with that. But I mean, I just think it's pretty fantastic that like, I mean, you're talking about massive cultural differences and you're able to go in there and melt the ice pretty quick and get things done. Did you find that, like like you said, like when they knew that you weren't BSing them and you were shooting them straight, that that kind of broke through some cultural lines?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Once they realized that I was going to do what I said I was going to do and that mm-hmm. I would get their cases pushed through and... That we would get them the capability, the the whether it was planes, missiles, boats, training, whatever it might be that they ordered, that uh, we would get, we would get it approved. And it was interesting when i when I was getting ready to leave the office or it, even when I had to drop the Pakistan portfolio to concentrate mainly on Iraq and Afghanistan because of their importance, it was growing significantly in the admiral's office and our secretary's office that uh, the Pakistan embassy was not overly thrilled with the fact that I was not going to be handling their cases anymore anymore in fact one of the attachés even asked the admiral if they could keep me (laughs) working on their cases and they were pretty high compliment they were told unfortunately Kim has has to work on some other things so
1: Mm.
0: but uh it was quite an honor, right? It was quite an honor to be able to work with them.
1: So you, you did foreign military sales, and this is like mid-2000s. The White House military social aid, was that later in your career? Am I correct?
0: Well, it was at the same time. So the White, so it's a, the white House military social aid is a special duty. So there are days that I would do my normal work day at, at the office, and then I would literally go right from the office with my uniform in hand and take the Metro right over to the White House and, oh, wow. and work, work a five-hour event, an evening reception at the White House or a concert or, or whatever. It might be It might be a state dinner, which went to well over midnight sometimes.
1: So, mm. so this was in concert with your role?
0: Yes. It wasn't a oh. duty at the White House. It was a, oh, my it was goodness. a special duty. So,
1: Wow. You That's have to quite know, an honor.
0: And sometimes you have to work morning events. Sometimes you have to work afternoon events. You can't always sign up for an evening event. So working with your your office to be able to say, hey, I won't be in the office this morning because I'm working an event at the White House.
1: Wow. And so after 17 years, you left the Navy. And how has service changed for you now that you've left the Navy?
0: Well, when I was in uniform, I was serving in the United States Navy. I was right. accomplishing the missions that were directed to me by my commanding officers and 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 my superiors. Now service is for me in the nonprofit space is serving mm-hmm. those who served and trying mm-hmm. to find resources and programs and connections to community resources uh, for our veterans and our military families. And I did that. You know, through Dixon Center that, in DC for five years. And then while I was the CEO of a homeless veteran service provider here in San Diego, and now here at National University, being the senior vice president for military veteran government affairs, where I'm really working with our leadership at National University to figure out what are the gaps in education for our veterans and our military families, because not everyone has the opportunity like I did to go to the Naval Academy or to go to George Washington University to get a master's or go to a traditional brick-and-mortar school. Many of our veterans, as soon as they leave service, they're married, they have, they have a job, they have kids, and maybe the only time that they can go to school and get their degree is in the evenings or on weekends or at two o'clock in the morning after all the kids have been put to, to bed and all the dishes have been done and whatever work has been completed, then they can open their their laptop and complete a
1: course. How, like, are these, are you facilitating this to, like, online education in various different places? What are you seeing, like, really, I, I'm interested in is, like, I think the pandemic has shown us a lot of things that, like, maybe the brick-and-mortar education system isn't exactly what we need to be continuing on with, and now that we have like these specialty fields of like software engineering and AI and all these different things that people can like learn specific skill sets that maybe a four year degree isn't needed, maybe just a two year degree and then they can go on and have a very successful career. How are you guys like pushing into that or what does that look like for you right now
0: well the the good thing is at national University that we've been on online for twenty years, and so When the pandemic hit and everybody had to go completely online, we Mm. had to just move approximately 25% of our classes that had been meeting in person to online. So Mm. it was fairly easy compared to what some of the other universities and schools had to deal with. But the good thing about National University is that we have a leadership that's very in tune and working towards uh, a micro-credentialing and figuring out and stackable credentials. Uh, because we understand, what does that mean? well, say uh, you can go to school and you can take a class here, you can get a certification here, and maybe that's mm-hmm. all you need. You don't need your four-year degree, okay. right? You just need to take a class in finance, or you need, mm-hmm. to, ta- you need to get some IT management certification skills. But then... You go back to work and maybe a year later, you need to come back and you need to take another class or you need to take. So you start stacking all of these up before you know it, you've got enough to create a degree. Right? Mm. So, And National is pretty good at figuring that out. And when it comes to veterans and, and military and and working with uh, the president of the university, he understands that not everybody, not all of our veterans have need need a full four-year degree to get a job. So figuring out what it is that they need, looking at their their experience, their previous, prior experience, their military experience, and then figuring out like, you know, most of our veterans have probably, especially the, the enlisted personnel, have taken classes here and there. And a lot of them took classes. Like when I was in the Navy, we had uh, at-sea uh, instructors that would that would deploy with us and give math classes and English classes. And many, many of them maybe didn't take it because they were really specifically aiming towards a degree, but they knew that if they took a class, they could put it on their eval and it would give them a little heads up Mm -hmm. and a little little bit more of an advantage when it came to promotion time.
1: How, how do you go about, and this is just a thought that I had, but like, when you serve in the military, you're learning skill sets and things that you can't learn in a classroom. And like, how do you promote that to employers?
0: Well, when I go and talk to employers to mm-hmm. to talk about the skills, values, and competencies that our military service members and their spouses, because I always include the spouses in, in the talk as well, is that there's a lot of things that we learn in the military with regards to teamwork, Prioritization of mission, right? Mission, accomplish the mission, but figure out what needs to come first prior to prioritization, figuring out how to work in teams, work, figure out how to work in fiscally constrained environments, and figuring out how to just mm. accomplish missions under a lot of stress. All of these things you can't teach via a book, you can't teach in a classroom. You, you There are things that you learn. And so You know, when I when we talk to to employers, it's not the employers that very much that that teach leadership. That it's not the one they don't teach teamwork. These folks are already coming with leadership skills and teamwork skills to teach them what the business is and they'll learn. And one of I had wrote an op ed last October that got picked up by real clear policy about uh, veterans have unlocked the key to a lot of uh, unemployment things that a lot of our folks are, a lot of civilians are experiencing right now is trying to figure out like, well, my job that I had before the pandemic is now no longer available. So is the same type of job and the the same exact skills going to be available? Or am I going to have to go to school and get a certification and learn a whole new skill, right? And the military, we do that all the time. I didn't have in the whole 17 years I was in the Navy, every time I went to a new command, it was a new job. It was completely different than the job that I had before.
1: So you learned the skill of adaptability. Yes. Can you talk about adaptation a little bit? Like, what does it mean to really be adaptable? Because you've been, like, to read your resume is, like, it's amazing. You've done so many stinking things. And, like, it's just kind of coming to me, like, how do you, how do you teach somebody to be adaptable?
0: You have to be willing to to learn and you have to be willing to leave your ego at the door and be willing to acknowledge that you may not know everything that you need to know when you, as soon as you walk in that door. Mm. And so I would talk to everybody who would talk to me at every job and say, teach me, tell me what I need to know. What are some things that you learned in this job that would be good for me to know? So- there's no comparison of, of being on a ship, being an operations officer, and then suddenly going doing foreign military sales. Not, there's not the same thing. And you have to learn a completely different job. And what about being the damage control assistant on a ship? You're fighting fires. And, then, and that's different yeah. from being the, an, the officer in charge of a bunch of landing craft. And so you have to learn different skills. And you have to be willing to go and find the experts in the field and ask them and just ask the questions and learn and study. And, and if you're not willing to learn and listen, then how can you ever be adaptable to change or, or, or learning new skills?
1: So you, you've been in some really high performance environments. You've been in the White House. You've been in the D.C. circle. You, you've you know, you've you've done a lot of amazing things. To you, what is an elite performer, a high performer? Like, what does high performance mean to you?
0: Well, that's a good that's a good question. Uh, high performance is setting goals for yourself that, to me, I can maybe I'll never reach them, but I keep striving to reach them. You know, maybe it's I keep going and I won't exactly get there, but I'm going to try again and keep going. And and you, you just keep improving at every step of trying to achieve that goal. Because I worry about people achieving their goals too soon because then what have they got to strive for? Mm-hmm. In my mind, you always have to set a goal that's just slightly out of reach. So you've always got something to strive for, right? And you've always got something that you're focused on. And I don't ever want to be the type of person where I'm like, uh, I've accomplished this. I, I'm good to go. I'm just going to sit back and go hang out at the pool. I don't have to do anything. Right. For me, I'm the type of person I, I need to go out and do something. So working from home right now is kind of a challenge because mm. I like the office environment because mm. I like being able to interact with folks. And I, I kind of like to challenge different people about what they're thinking and, and say, hey, what can I be doing better? What, you know, what is something, how can I keep doing, doing my job? Right now, my coworkers are the dogs. <laughs> other than my Zoom calls that I see, I see folks from a uh, uh, national university on Zoom calls or we set up Zoom calls with uh, partners uh, that we have with other organizations.
1: Forget about national university. Let's just put that aside for a second. And this is something I've been talking to just people in different industries about is, I'm a, I don't know, I want to get your take on this but we've all been working remotely for a year now, coming up on a year, okay? What do you think that's doing to culture? You know, like, I just like, you know, there's people like yourself and like me that like, I crave team, right? I'll just just tell you what I think and then you can volley off of it if you want, (laughs) but I think it can erode culture. Like at first it was really novel. Like, hey, I can be at home, walk downstairs and see my kids, you know, my kids are downstairs right now. You know, it's, it's great. But then like, there's something about being next to that teammate and getting that interactive feedback and like knocking on the door and be like, Hey, what do you think about this? And there's been this shift in like, you know, if you look at commercial real estate, commercial real estate kind of took a dive. I think there's going to be a rebound where people are going to be like, we have to get everybody back. You know what I'm saying, with the flexibility in case something ever happens again where we can shift, but there's nothing like being in a team environment like face to face, you know what I'm saying, and I don't know about you, but I am like craving that right now, like seeing you is awesome. It would be ten times better if we were sitting across from each other, you know
0: oh, I absolutely agree i'm I'm very much uh just like you i I crave that personal interaction with people i. Seeing people on Zoom is certainly much better than a typical standard, you know, antiquated conference call where you can hear people's voices and you're like, who is that talking? I, yeah. <laughs> capture, I recognize that voice. And you're like, oh, maybe it's that so-and-so. But having that, that interaction with people, it, culture, I think, has, has shifted for many organizations because I have heard of organizations that were, they're not planning on going back. They have realized that their their employees can be just as productive as working from a home office. Uh, well, and that may be true, right? Because I can tell you that you know with the Zoom calls. It's very easy to go from one meeting to the next meeting, and you don't have to you don't have to walk down the office down the hall. You don't have to go to the cafe to get a cup of coffee. You just close one window out and and click on the next link, and you're now all of a sudden in this new meeting, and I think it's a different culture now, right? Because you have to start figuring out what it is that, that drives people from a Zoom session. And, and culture is very much based on values, right? The values of an organization. And how do you get that? How do you get that from a Zoom call when meetings right now, you know, meetings with other folks if you're on zoom calls, they're very specific meetings. You meet people because you have an agenda, you have a meeting and it's set for a certain time. There's no, as you mentioned, there's no just popping your head in and saying, Hey, let's go there's grab none of that 10
1: minutes before the meeting starts. No. And then you get off topic, you know, sometimes it's okay to get off topic for a few minutes and like get to know people, you know, and you you learn their quirks and they learn yours and yeah, it kind of becomes this, this very stale situation where it's an exchange, tit for tat, instead of like a human bond. And exactly. I'm concerned about it just personally. And the more I, t- I have a friend that has a um, concrete company here in, in Houston, and it was very interesting. They couldn't go virtual just because of the nature of their business. And he's like, our culture stayed so rock solid where I'm talking to other colleagues and other businesses. And it's just started to kind of crumble. And now they're like, we got to get people back. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I just, it's very interesting to hear, you know, to have this dialogue with somebody that kind of feels the same feelings. Cause I, uh, I have a feeling, somebody asked recently, like, what are you looking forward to most in a post COVID world? And I'm like, I'm just looking forward to just being with people and not worrying about stuff. Like, come on over to my house. You know what I'm saying?
0: Well, and, and it's those those offhand conversations that aren't scheduled that you not only you learn about people, but you find out things that bond you together. Commonalities, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, you grew up in so and so I grew up, you know, like 20 mm-hmm. minutes from you or or, you know, so and so I know that person or that that type of thing. And that's certainly not happening now. I mean, I'm thankful that I that I know at least a lot of my my coworkers cuz i i actually started this job the, uh, on march 16th right oh my goodness <laughs> the week the week that that uh, everyone went into quarantine so yeah uh, at least i went through orientation at the office mm. because the next day i was told to take the laptop home and i've been working from home ever since so had i not been part of the organization for 2 years as a, as a board member this job would be much more
1: difficult. Hmm. So, as somebody that's always looking to take the next hill, you know. I mean, like, I'm just going to ask you, like, what is? I mean, you're doing some amazing work for veterans. Does this work ever end? Is there a different type of work? You know what I'm saying? Like that, you want to lean into a little bit.
0: Well, I mean, I I don't think the work will ever end. I think the the needs of our veterans are going to shift. So. Uh, services and resources need to shift as well. There's going to be emphasis on different things. I mean, look at because of the pandemic, mental health, food insecurity, loss of employment, loss of housing. A lot of those things, right, are now forefront in the minds of our veterans and their families. And and how do you how do you cope with that? But what happens now post pandemic? You know, do they have the skills? to get the jobs that are going to become available. I think, and I've talked about this with several other organizations and, and other folks even in my own organization, because I think that when businesses start opening back up, they're going to realize that there's a whole new way of operating that they didn't realize before. And it might be more online. It's going to, they're going to be more, more virtual. And so if our veterans and their families and their spouses don't have the skills to be able to compete for those jobs that are going to become available. How are they going to be competitive in the marketplace?
1: So, yes, there's a lot of work to do. I, I'm interested to see that America is going through a lot of changes right now. You know, we've, we've been, the past year has been, it's been difficult and it's been good, you know, through, through struggle come very good things, you know, like that's how characters revealed. Right. And that's how change is made. But it's been, I mean, I think we've all felt it. But the only way that you adapt is through pressure, you know, no pressure, no diamonds, right? And somebody like yourself is in a great position to help our veterans be in a position, you know, position them to where they can take advantage of this because they have that skill of adaptability. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I I just it's very exciting and I'm I'm very thankful for the work that you're doing and, and just you're just such an impressive person. I just love, I just love your spirit. You have this just amazing attitude. I have one more question for you as somebody that's like, you've been in a lot of high stress environments. You don't seem to carry it. Like you just have a very great mental affect. You just look, you watch my videos. You just carry yourself very well. How do you manage your health and well being so that you can be leading the way that you lead?
0: Well, yeah, I'm not sure. In fact, that's a great question because we're, I was actually talking with a former coworker last night. And, you know, leading uh, when I was the CEO of uh, Veterans Village of San Diego, she was asking me, you know, she's like, you were great at the, being the CEO. And I said, yes. I said, but I tell you, every single day was mentally exhausting. And she's like, but you never showed it. And I said, I couldn't show it. I said as a leader you can't show that you're mentally exhausted because I didn't want people to to think that I couldn't handle the job or or that I wasn't there to be able to support them you know especially my team and and the veterans and so for me it's you got to find outlets outlets that uh, that can help you relax and recharge and sometimes for me it's 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 going for a walk with the dog sometimes it's just jumping on a plane I'm going somewhere different. It might be going to a resort and hanging out for uh, for a couple of days. So, you know, obviously, that's all come to a, a, a screen. So, what are you
1: doing? Out- What's your outlets right now? I mean, you're in San Diego. It's a beautiful place. Nice weather. What do you do right now?
0: Actually, probably Sunday. I'm probably going to go to the beach.
1: <laughs> right. Do you do you have like a specific type of exercise, or do you focus on your sleep, or, or any? You know, what is it for you? Is it unplugging completely.
0: I like to run and listen to music while I'm okay. while I'm running, right? And I don't run fast, so it's it's the slow jog because I'm getting old. But it's it's uh, being able to listen to music and just kind of unwind and or sit down here on the couch and watch a movie or or go sit on the beach and just watch the water. I I love to sit on the beach and just watch the ocean. I don't like to go into the ocean because there are sharks. But uh, I. <laughs> So I am a little risk averse when it comes to sharks and things that, that like to eat humans. But, uh, I like to watch, I like to watch the water because there's something magical about the, the, the water. And of course, when I sit and watch waves, I'm trying to think like, let's see the equation for a deep water wavelength. Cause I majored in ocean engineering at the, at the Academy, but yeah. And I, I call friends. And I think mm. one of the things that, that, has really emphasized the, during this pandemic where a lot of us are stuck at home. You're not seeing friends as often as you'd want to. You're not going to parties. You're not, you know, traveling around all over the place like I used to is I think that, you know, you call somebody up or you you set up maybe a zoom session and you have a virtual happy hour, but the relationships that you do have are becoming much more meaningful. Mm.
1: I, I, you know that you say that's really true because we we were in, we were in Virginia when the pandemic hit, and it, it was different in Virginia than in Texas. Just just different, and uh, we got really close with the people on our street. Like there was just like communal living that almost started to take place because we all kind of knew and trusted each other, and we're like, hey, if you you know, we'll hang out with you if you don't do these things. You know, it was kind of like this unwritten lo- rule, and like I will. When you say that, the relationships of the people on that street became really, really, really tight. And then we moved. It was pretty tough. But um, I have noticed that. And I hope that it's something that continues on. You know what I'm saying? That like this can be a time where like we've had a lot happen. I think people are more introspective about their opinions, their views of other people, how we're treating other people, inequality, and that like when we can physically come together in a safe way, this kind of, I hope newfound love is kind of able to seep out and people are able to embrace this community. You know what I'm saying?
0: I do. I think, I think though, that we have also been uh, highlighting during this pandemic the, of the inequalities right, right that exist, right? Mm-hmm. And, and people have to be willing to have uncomfortable conversations with others that it's not a fun thing to get into a, a conversation with someone that has completely opposite views of to- on topics as you do. Mm. But I think that's the only way that we're going to be able to solve some of these challenges that we're facing as a nation is to be able to ha- be willing to have those conversations. And it's interesting we have uh, uh, some conversations uh, here at the university about being inclusive and what does being inclusive mean? Well, you know, it's it's it means having uncomfortable conversations uh, with people that you may not, you know disagree with, mm-hmm. and so it's interesting, right? It like has there's a lot of a lot of uncomfortable conversations going on right now, and how are people dealing with it? Do you just shut them off? I mean, I know people that are completely yeah. shutting down you know they they won't even talk to their friends anymore. they're not even talking to their family members anymore because of opposing viewpoints, and so how are we? going to to overcome that right it takes a selfless attitude it is and we get we have to we have to as a nation
1: when the pandemic hit and then we had a lot of these social injustice issues start that have been there and the conversation really got brought to the forefront i had some colleagues that we started having those conversations and i had friends over to my house it was really interesting i trained olympic sprinters for a long time and one of Two of them I'd worked with for 14 years and they're Jamaican and uh, they moved to Williamsburg. And so we've been friends for a very long time, but we've never had this conversation about race. Mm. Although we were very, very close and I'd been to their country and they'd been to mine and houses and broke bread, been overseas. And we just sat down in the living room. and I was like, talk to me, like you know what I'm saying? Like, talk to me about your experience. Mm -hmm. And and then I, and then I call up another friend, tell me about your, you know what I'm saying? Like what, what am I missing here? And those conversations have continued and it's deepened our relationships and it's opened my eyes in a lot of different ways. And like, tell me about you know your feelings when you drive down the street at night and what's going on in your head. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm thankful for the opportunity to have those conversations in a difficult, you know what I'm saying? You're not, you're not thankful for what's happening, but you're thankful for the opportunity to do what you can to fix it. You know what I'm saying? With your family, with where you are, with your attitude and how you love, serve, and treat other people. Right. Absolutely. So you're involved in a lot of different things. You're on sit on different boards. What, where can people find you to help connect and serve, you know, maybe help in different initiatives that you're involved with?
0: Uh, well, the easiest place to find me is probably on LinkedIn, just Kimberly Mitchell at National University. So you'll probably be able to find me easily Google me, right? Just type in Kimberly Mitchell Vietnam and every, every uh, article in the world uh, that has been written will, will be able to, to come up. But yeah, just here at National University.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been like a really amazing conversation. I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing and how you're, you're serving our veterans. And I'm just, I'm really thankful for you. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, well, you're welcome, Eric. And thanks for inviting me to come and uh, have a conversation with you today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, sign up for my high performance newsletter at www.ericquorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn.